Welcome to the Non-Anxious Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Shitama, author, teacher, speaker, and coach. I focus on your spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being to help you be the best leader possible. Each episode explores research and practical tips so you can be a non-anxious presence personally and professionally. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the Non-Anxious Leader Podcast, Episode 17. I'm Jack Shitama, and today's topic is SOAP, Innovation and Emergent Strategy. In 1955, Fortune magazine started what they were calling the Fortune 500. It was the 500 largest companies in America based on revenue for that year. I found it interesting that in 2017, only 60 of those original companies on the 1955 Fortune 500 list remained. The rest had either gone bankrupt, merged, or had contracted so much that they were no longer on the Fortune 500. Here are some names that I've found familiar, but I think have disappeared for one reason or another. Maybe you'll recognize them. Sinclair Oil, RCA, Eastman Kodak, American Motors, Philco. I actually went to the 1955 list. I'll post a a link to that in the show notes. And there were a lot of names I didn't recognize. There were 54, I believe, that have been on every year, including 2018. But for the most part, the fact that so many are no longer on the list shows how difficult it is to have staying power in the business world, how difficult it is for an organization to not just survive, but thrive over a long period of time. I remember my father-in-law, who grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, talking about in the 1940s how this high-tech thing came to his town. It was called an electric toaster. And the cool thing about it, what he was saying, was that you actually had to toast one side of the bread and then flip over to the other side of the bread. I, I never even knew that. I thought the first toaster actually just put it in the slot and pushed down the button. This got me thinking about how quickly technology changes and how even whole business models come and go nowadays. In my lifetime, I've listened to music on 8-tracks, hard to find, cassettes, hard to find. CDs are around, but they become marginalized. Now most of the music I listen to, I stream on a device. I used to watch movies on a VHS and record them. Now, most of the movies I watch are streaming movies. Remember movie rental stores like Blockbuster? Remember paying for long-distance calling charges? These things come and go so quickly because technology changes and our world changes. And even the things that are still around are things that have been marginalized. Think about film developing. Most people don't develop film. And even when we print pictures, it's from a digital file that we go to Walmart or CVS and we put it in something and print it or we order it online and they send us prints. You can still buy a roadmap, but how many people still use roadmaps? They still put out phone books and this surprises me. I um, usually when we get a phone book in my driveway, what I'll do is as soon I'll pick it up and I'll walk right over to our recycling bin and drop it in because I never use a phone book. 
This just goes to show how quickly our world changes and how challenging it is for organizations to keep up, whether it's a for-profit business, a non-profit organization, or a congregation. And it emphasizes that we need to be willing to change and innovate if we are going to survive and even thrive. In 1837, William Proctor, a candle maker, and James Gamble, a soap maker, formed the company Proctor & Gamble. Both products used the same raw materials, fats and oils, so it was a good partnership. They needed the same things to make different products. Proctor & Gamble was located in Cincinnati, which had some strategic advantages. Cincinnati was known as Porkopolis, because of the large meatpacking industry, and that gave them access to lard and tallow, which were the meatpacking byproducts that they used as raw materials in making candles and soap. They had access to the Mississippi River via the Ohio River, so they could send products south all the way to New Orleans. And in 1840, three years after they had founded the business, the Miami Canal linked Cincinnati to the Great Lakes, which gave them access to New York City via the Erie Canal. And of course, the expansion of the railroad system nationwide gave them national distribution. In the 1870s, three and a half decades after they had started, candle production slipped to below half of their sales. This was because kerosene use was growing, making candles obsolete. So Procter & Gamble responded by doubling down on soap. What they were able to do was to develop a soap that was actually made from vegetable oil instead of animal fat. So this was a, quite a an innovation, and it was designed to imitate Castile soaps, which were the hallmark of fine soaps. They named this soap ivory soap because of its white color and they were able to keep the cost low even though it had the look and feel of a fine soap. On top of that it lasted longer than other soaps and it floated. So here we have an innovation that helped them to deal with the decline in the candle business and they also turned it into a marketing coup because they came up with the slogan for ivory soap, it's 99 and 44 hundredths percent pure. They went on a large advertising campaign in magazines and newspapers, and ivory became a big hit, propelling Procter & Gamble into leadership in the soap business through the rest of the 19th century. P&G continued to operate in the first few decades of the 20th century, but they were a soap company and they were in competition with other important companies like Lever and Colgate. But in 1933, P&G introduced Dreft, which was the first synthetic detergent. It was developed from ideas discovered by Robert Duncan, one of their process engineers, who had been on a tour of European plants from other manufacturers to learn about the products and processes of P&G's counterparts across the pond. And back then, people didn't consider themselves an international con uh, competition, so it was okay to go and visit other plants and they would welcome you. Draft was a breakthrough because it could clean clothes and hard water without developing scum or curds. That was the problem with 
laundry detergents in those days that if they uh, were washing in hard water, which was prevalent across the Midwest and the Rocky Mountain area, they would develop scum or curds. And so it was really uh, hard to get clothes clean. Unfortunately, draft didn't work well on heavily soiled clothes. When they were deciding to actually put draft into the market, whether to actually go forward with a synthetic laundry detergent, William Cooper Proctor, who had been president of the company from 1907 to 1930 and chairman from 1930 to 34, so he was chairman of the board at the time that draft was introduced, he said, quote, the plan to work on synthetic detergents may ruin the soap business, but if anybody is going to ruin the soap business, it had better be Procter & Gamble. So Procter knew that this is was going to be a game changer, but he also realized that somebody was going to do it and they might as well be the one. They might as well take leadership. Now, as it turned out, Dreft was not the breakthrough they were hoping for because it just didn't clean well enough. It didn't develop scum or curds, but it did not clean heavily soiled clothes well enough. So P&G focused on a research project to develop that heavy-duty laundry detergent, that synthetic heavy-duty laundry detergent. And this started in the 30s, right around when Dreft was hitting the market, but it never succeeded. So by the end of the decade, the effort, which was codenamed Project X, had been all but shelved. The, the senior leadership just said, this is not going to work, so we're not going to put resources into it anymore. Except one engineer, Dick Byerly, was obsessed. He continued to work on the project in secret. Byerly ultimately let his boss, Thomas Halberstadt, know about his work, but the project was kept undercover for fear that it would get shut down completely. By 1945, Byerly's research had made enough progress that his boss, Halberstadt, and his boss's boss, Herb Coyth, realized that the potential breakthrough product that they had in hand needed to go to senior management. In the fall of 1945, senior management at Procter & Gamble assembled and Halberstadt and Coyth did a demonstration of this new heavy-duty synthetic laundry detergent that had been developed by Dick Byerly. They got excited about it and they started talking about how to bring this to market and they realized it would take two to three years that was their standard operating procedure. It would take several months to develop samples, six more months to do blind tests with consumers in a handful of cities, more time to incorporate test results into product changes, and then there would come shipping tests, testing of advertising, consumer polling, and final revisions. The problem with this timetable is that it would give competitors, Lever Brothers and Colgate, a chance to develop a competitive formula. President Richard Dupree asked one of the senior managers, Kirk Brody, his opinion, and he said, I wonder if that's the best way to go. Brody realized that doing the blind testing would allow Lever and Colgate to get samples of the product and start trying to make a comparable product. So they would lose their advantage of getting into the market sooner. Of course, the product that their competitors would have might not be as good, but as Brody commented, it would crowd the marketplace. As he says, quote, surely their product will not be as good as ours, but they will crowd the market with similar advertising and they will have a competitive product. We will not be alone. 
Brody went on to say in this meeting, we should bypass both the usual blind tests and the shipping and advertising tests. This would give us almost two years start over Lever and Colgate. Now this was a big decision because it would mean at least a $15 million commitment of resources, maybe as much as $25 million for a company that was doing less than $500 million in sales annually. One of the executives in the room responded by saying, Kirk, you know we've never done that. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever heard somebody say we've never done it that way before? But Brody's reply was, I know, but this product has so many advantages, it is in a different class from any other new product we have ever introduced. Certainly there are risks, but the potential is so great, I think we should take those risks. And so in the spring of 1946, Tide laundry detergent was launched by Procter & Gamble, and it took over the laundry detergent market. More importantly, it turned Procter & Gamble into a technology company. They made this transition that started in the early 30s with Dreft and continued with Dick Byerly's research throughout the rest of the 30s and the first half of the 1940s. And with the introduction of Tide Laundry Detergent, Procter & Gamble had made the full transformation from industrial soap company to technology company that happened to make consumer products. Procter & Gamble's long history highlights the difference between deliberate strategy and emergent strategy. Deliberate strategy is focused on planning. An organization defines its direction, identifies benchmarks, and measures progress. It typically comes from the top. Emergent strategy develops over time in the absence of a specific mission or goal. It is what happens when our plans run up against a changing reality. Regardless of intended plans, emergent strategies develop when real people doing real work develop a pattern of doing things over time, regardless of the plans of the organization. While deliberate strategy comes from the top, emergent strategy often develops among middle management and even among the grassroots. Procter & Gamble is an example of emergent strategy. Draft moved Procter & Gamble towards synthetic detergents, and it was because of the trip by Robert Duncan to Europe that the idea was discovered and the development began. But left up to senior management, synthetic detergents would have gone by the wayside because they gave up on Project X, the project that ultimately resulted in Tide Laundry Detergent. If it hadn't been for the secret work of Dick Byerly, much of what he did on his own time, and the cover he got from his boss, Thomas Halberstadt, and his boss's boss, Herb Coyth, Tide would have never been developed. Furthermore, if Halberstadt and Coyth had not been willing to bring this to top management, Tide would have never made it to market. Now, it is to the credit of senior management that they did make the decision to move forward and actually to shortcut the process to get into the market sooner. That Tide became such a history-making product and helped transform Procter & Gamble into a technology company. And credit William Cooper Proctor, who 12 years earlier said, if anybody's going to ruin the soap business, it's going to be us. 
These are important decisions. These are people who are dealing with real realities and learning how to adapt and innovate. And much of the time, those innovations, those changes emerge out of the work that people in the organization are doing, not coming from the top. The important thing to remember about deliberate strategy and emergent strategy is it's not an either or. It's a both and. You certainly want to be planning ahead as an organization, but you can't get locked into your plans and not be willing to adapt or see the things that are happening by the people in the organization who are doing outstanding work and coming up with innovations because they care. And at the same time, you can't just focus on emergent strategy and just do things as they come without having some sense of where you think you need to go as an organization. You need planning and you need to be flexible. I'm on the board of directors for a pretty sizable nonprofit and I had a phone meeting this week with the CEO to discuss a proposed change in strategy. She had asked me for this phone meeting just to uh, so I could comment on the ideas that they were putting forth to the board. She told me that their consultant had determined that their best approach is to have a three-year strategic plan but update it every year. So the real focus is on the one-year time frame. And I think this is important because it's that one-year time frame where if you really focus on what you're supposed to be doing, what your plans are, it also allows you to adapt and pivot as needed to changing circumstances and things that might emerge as you and your organization are doing the work. So I think that's how deliberate strategy and emergent strategy work together, how they go hand in hand. And if you know any of my work, you know I'm a big fan of one-year plans. When I consult with churches and do planning, I focus on one-year plans with quarterly goals. In fact, I have a five-page strategic paper that I've written that I can make available to you. It's it's how to jumpstart congregational change. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's available for free. So that's it for this episode. I will put all the links. There are a couple great articles. One on the history of PNG, especially the development of Dreft and Tide. Another from Harvard Business School on the strategic issues that senior management faced when they were bringing Tide to market. And as always, you can find all of this at the nonanxiousleader.com forward slash 17. That's the number one seven. And you can also subscribe to my blog on the website as well. So until next time, thanks and goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, there are two things you can do to help others find this podcast. First, tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. And second, leave a review. I appreciate your help. Finally, you can find more resources as well as subscribe to my blog at the nonanxiousleader.com. Now, go be yourself.